is where I would be around some very wealthy people. And there was this one particular meeting I'll never forget. It was, uh, I, I managed to be invited to hang out with some, some guys who worked in the, the finance industry up in Boston. And they invited me to this after work hangout spot of theirs, and it was a really nice spot. It was a sushi place that overlooked the ocean. It was, it was really cool. Um, but, and, and these guys were really nice, too. They were friendly. They were, they were Christians. They invited me to be there. Um, but nevertheless, when I walked into that space, I just had this overwhelming sense. Looking at the people around me, I thought, man, I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> this, this is not where I belong. I had that, you know, oh my, is it too late to turn around? Can I get out of here? But I put on my best fake smile and tried to keep up with the conversations about the ups and downs of the market. And, you know, after a little while, I started to get comfortable, and I thought, you know, maybe, maybe I can swing it here. Maybe I, I can fit in. And then they decided to order. And these guys decided as their kind of afternoon snack to split just a few $200 sushi boats <laughs> before we went home for the day. And at the end of the event, we split the check. So I went home, begged Melissa for forgiveness, <laughs> and made sure not to make that mistake again. And, and what was funny about that whole event, as I think back on it, it's those guys probably didn't notice a thing. They probably didn't notice how uncomfortable I was or how out of place I felt. They certainly weren't trying to drive me away. They wanted to make me feel comfortable. They had invited me there, after all. But they just couldn't see how the culture that they were a part of would impact a poor pastor who was in his 20s at the time. Now, believe it or not, I think there are some similarities between that story and this story that we're reading about today. Some of the same issues are at the heart of this passage as they were in that interaction that I had. Because this account, this story about Jesus cleaning out the temple courts, well, at the center of the text is this simple question, are we truly welcoming? Or do we just think we are? Are we truly welcoming? Or do we just think we are? Another way to put it is, are, are we doing things to distract? Are we doing things to prevent people from coming to Jesus? Maybe things we don't even realize. So as we look at this passage today, I'm hoping, I'm praying that the Lord might open our eyes to see new ways that we could be welcoming towards outsiders. And if you're here this morning and you feel like an outsider, my prayer is that you might be able to, to see past any obstacles that are here today and that you might be able to see Jesus as he really is. And so we're going to break it up, three parts, really quickly. Three things. The problem with the courtyard the purpose of the temple, and the perception of the people. That's how we're going to go through this story this morning. And we're going to start with the problem with the courtyard. Um, okay, so this passage, it takes place just prior to the Passover celebration. And Passover is a huge Jewish feast and celebration. This was going to be a time when people would be coming to Jerusalem from all over the place. Uh, this was a moment to remember how God had delivered the people out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. 
And this, of course, that's the reason why Jesus is here. He has come, we read, to celebrate the Passover. And then we read verse 14. It says that when Jesus arrived in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. All right, so just so you can try to understand this, here's a little diagram of what the temple looked like or approximately what it looked like at that point. So what's going on here? All right, so practically speaking, you need to understand that people were coming to this place from far away. A lot of them were coming from areas that used different kinds of money. And to get into the temple, there was a particular tax you had to pay with a particular type of coin. And so they needed money changers. They needed people to come and and exchange those funds so they could pay the temple tax. Also, some of them were coming from great distances where you can't really bring a cow with you, right? You're not going to drag oxen and sheep along with you all the way to this temple. So they actually, it was helpful to have cattle and sheep and doves and things for sale so that you could bring them to the temple for these sacrifices that they needed to carry out. But here's the problem. The space where they were selling all these things was in this outer courtyard, which is about right here. So here's the temple. Here's the outer courtyard. Here's the outer courtyard. Down here, this is like the size of a football field to give you an idea of how big we're looking at. And in this outer court... That's where all these sales were taking place. Now, according to Jewish law, this outer court is also the only place where Gentiles are allowed to worship. That place is called the court of the Gentiles. And maybe you're thinking, well, why do, why do they even need a court of the Gentiles? Why would they have a place for non-Jewish people to worship at the temple? Well, it's constructed, if you've read the Bible, because throughout Scripture, God sets the expectation that not only the Jews, but the entire world is going to come to worship Yahweh. In Isaiah, the prophet, he talks about how there will be a time when foreigners will bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. So they built the court of the Gentiles because they expected that Gentiles were going to come and they were going to worship God. That was their theology. That was their hope. And yet, if you were a Gentile that day coming to worship, what would you have found? D.A. Carson, a biblical scholar, he puts it this way. He says, instead of the solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, you would have found the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, you would have found noisy commerce, a bunch of racket. It's not a place for worship. That's what had happened here. In fact, it was probably more like the concession stand at a football game or something. And it hadn't always been that way. Once upon a time, even when this temple was being built, all of those sales and all of that stuff happened nearby, but it happened just across the valley, not too far away. But that this new pattern of having all the the cattle and all the money changing happening right at the temple had been going on for so long that it had just become the norm. People had stopped thinking about it. Really, they'd stopped thinking about the Gentiles coming at all. Why? Well, because this was easier. This way was more convenient. 
they got the temple set up the way they liked it. And here's where we need to pause. So many times I've, I've read this story or I've heard somebody preach on it, and, and I kind of smile even as I imagine Jesus coming into the, the temple courts. I think, those idiots, right? They don't know what's coming. Of course, this is what they deserve, right? I laugh as, as I think of, you know, the justice and the righteousness of Jesus coming in and giving these people what they deserve. But as I meditated on this, as I've thought more deeply about it in the last couple of weeks, it's been hard not to recognize how the evangelical church that we're in, the evangelical church at large, is probably more guilty of this sin than, than any of these money changers ever were. We're just like these guys. We have filled our faith with all kinds of obstacles that get in the way of people coming to God. Do you understand what I mean? We've, we've built our worship around our own convenience. We've built it around our own tastes and our own preferences rather than trying to make space for the outsider. Those people back then who were worshiping in the temple that day, they, they could not see anything wrong with what was happening in the courtyard. That's just the way things are. That's what they thought. That's just the way it is. We like having our animals right there. I mean, come on. It's not like any, that many Gentiles are going to come anyway. right? Why, why would we bother inconveniencing ourselves for the chance that we might get a couple of visitors today? Now, how's that different? From us today. Someone told me recently that, that in the city of Mooresville, every month they're adding 1,000 new addresses. I can't even fathom that. I don't know how that's possible, but that's, that's what I heard. They're adding 1,000 addresses every month in, in Mooresville. That means we have tons of new people that are coming into this community frequently. A lot of those people happen to be young families. And that's a group that this church has said, we want to reach. You went out and you hired a pastor and you called him the pastor for young families, right? That's me. But let's just think about that. You know, when young families do come to our church, what do they find? When they bring their small children, where do the kids go? Who is here to teach those children on Sunday morning? We don't really have anything for them. And you may not recognize it. You maybe have never thought about it before, but the truth is that's an obstacle. It's a sign that says, oh, we weren't expecting you. <laughs> we weren't planning for you to be here. Or what about the space we're in? You know, as church people, who most of us are, like we're, we're pretty comfortable in rooms with red carpets and old hymnals. We know how these things work. That's the way it's been for, for generations. We know how to use these books. We know how to stand. We know when to sit. We know what to recite. But to somebody coming in from the outside, I don't know if you recognize, this stuff is intimidating. It's kind of scary. It can be an obstacle. Now, I know I'm, I'm at the point of meddling, right? <laughs> I know I'm, 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 I'm stepping on toes a little bit. But, but the question I, I'm just trying to ask is this. Are we willing to inconvenience ourselves 
Are we willing to give ourselves a little extra work so that those people who are on the margins can find some space? So that those people who are on the outside can feel like they belong on the inside with us. We talk a big game. Not just us, but the whole evangelical church. We talk a big game about wanting to reach out and and love our neighbor. But the truth is, you cannot be missional and also be rigid. Just speak to a missionary. Go find one. We support a lot of them. Go ask one of these missionaries. They will tell you, if you want to reach people, you have to adapt. You have to make space. You have to do whatever you can to remove every obstacle but Christ. Right? Because let's, let's be honest, Christ is a big obstacle. <laughs> Christ is, he, t- he calls himself the stumbling block. The call to come and die is enough. <laughs> That's offensive enough. That is countercultural enough. Why would we want to add anything else on top of that? So here's the question that we need to ponder right here at the outset. What does our courtyard look like? Right? What does our proverbial courtyard look like? What are the obstacles that maybe we've gotten so used to that we don't even notice them anymore? And I don't mean what do we say. I don't even mean what do we believe in our theology, but really, what do we actually do? What do outsiders see when they come in here seeking God? Are we making room for everybody else Or are we fine-tuning the church so precisely to meet our own needs in the most efficient way possible? Another way to think about it, are you more concerned for yourself and your own needs and your own preferences or for the potential single mom who comes in here with her children to worship? Are you wanting things just the way they were when your grandpa was worshiping here? Or are you looking at these floods of people who are moving into you next door from all over the country, from all around the world, and these people that God has brought into your mission field in your backyard, and are you saying, what can I do for them? And before you answer that question, maybe just let's answer, let's let The observable facts answer our question, right? We just went through a long budget meeting. What does our budget say about the answer to that question? What does the way you spend your time throughout the week say about your answer to that question? Who you hang out with? What ministries you pour the most energy into? Are we making way for others? Or are we primarily concerned with our own needs? That's the question. That's the problem with the courtyard. That's the thing that caused our Lord to get angrier than we have ever seen him before. That people were choosing their own convenience over the mission of God. So now let's talk some more about the temple. What is the purpose of the temple? Now this passage, if it doesn't show you anything else, it shows you that Jesus meant business, right? Jesus wasn't somebody you wanted to mess around with. If you go and you read this whole gospel, what you're going to find time and time again is you're going to find a Jesus who is so tender much of the time, so meek 
so kind. And who is he kind towards? Well, he's really kind towards the brokenhearted. He is, he is tender with those who see their need. But when Jesus encounters religious people, especially religious people who are stuck in their ways, who are convinced that they're holy or that they're right, well, that's when Jesus throws down. In fact, Jesus was so passionate about this whole scene that this isn't the only time he did this. Do you know that? This, this time is recorded happening at the very beginning of his ministry. But if you read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you read that he did this again several years later, right before the end of his ministry. Just days before he was crucified. Why did he keep doing this? Well, here's a hint. It's not because he cared that much about the building. It's because he cares about our hearts. Look back in the passage with me, verse 18. So Jesus overturns these temples. He overturns these tables, and he drives out the money changers. And then it says, the Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Now, just imagine this scene for a moment. Actually, imagine another scene. Imagine somebody walked into our space right now, and he just walked up to the balcony and started pushing all the sound equipment off that table back there. Right? What would you, ask, what would you say to him if he started doing that? I know what I'd say. What are you doing? Are you crazy? <laughs> Come on, do you know how much that stuff costs? Leave it alone. I'll tell you what I wouldn't say to him. You know what question I wouldn't ask him while he does that? What sign can you show me to prove your authority to do these things? That's a strange question to ask, right? So why did they ask that question? Well, because... There was something different about Jesus, and they could tell. When Jesus did these things, there was something remarkable about Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us that people are regularly astonished by Jesus. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not like the other teachers of the law. So they asked him that question because they could tell something was, something was different about him. And he doesn't disappoint when he gives his answer. His answer is, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. Here's what he's saying there. Jesus is saying, I am the true temple. I am the true temple. Everybody say, true temple. Jesus is the true temple. Now, think about that. What is the temple? What is the temple for? What is this temple in Jerusalem for? Well, first, it's supposed to be the place you meet with God. When the original temple was built, you can read about this in the Old Testament, it says that when Solomon finished the temple, the Spirit of God descended so heavily upon that place that the people couldn't even stand up. But Jesus says he's the true temple. Jesus is God in the flesh. 
And what you find as you read scripture that, is that if you have faith in Jesus, then the Spirit of God will dwell in each and every one of us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, don't you know that you yourselves are the temple of God and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? The temple was the place to meet God, but Jesus is the ultimate way we meet God. He is the final way that we encounter God and we live in relationship with him. So that's the first thing. But what else? What else is the temple for? Well, it's a place to offer sacrifices. It was the place for the priest to offer sacrifices for sin. People came to give sacrifices for Thanksgiving, sacrifices for their guilt. They came to have their sin atoned for. Even in this passage, that's why people have come to Jerusalem. They're here for the Passover. They're here for this feast to celebrate how God had spared them and delivered them from death by providing the blood of a sacrificial lamb. But Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus is the true lamb that was slain, right? He's the sacrifice that all those other sacrifices were pointing towards. And he's the ultimate priest. Hebrews, it says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Jesus, the true priest, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. What else? What else is the temple for? Jesus is the, the true sacrifice, the true priest. Well, the temple was meant to be unique in all the earth. It was the one place that God had said, all the world will come and worship me. It was the place where people from the ends of the earth were supposed to gather. Sometimes we forget that. But the temple was special. The temple was unique because it was that one point in the whole world where people were supposed to come and worship the true and living God, to be united together. And Jesus is the true temple. He is the one to whom the whole world is supposed to come. Every tongue and tribe and nation will bow down before his throne. He is the one who unites all of creation. Every race Every culture, every socioeconomic class, he gives everyone one common identity that, that, that can hold it all, and that is identity of, of the children of God. He's the true temple. He is the ultimate place where we meet with God. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the ultimate priest, and he is the ultimate way that everyone in the world can come together and worship the living God. In verse 22, it says, after Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. What that means is, 
Nobody understood what Jesus was talking about. <laughs> when Jesus said, I, I am the uh, true temple, when he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days, they didn't know what he was talking about. But now, we look back and we see that verse and we can marvel and we can be astonished. Jesus wasn't just mad that he walked in the temple and there were too many animals there. But this was a moment that was much bigger. He was, he, it was about God's purpose and God's mission. It was about God's plan to redeem the whole world through him. A plan that included not just the Jewish people, but the Gentiles as well. Not just the good religious folk, but the scrappy sinners, the messed up and the broken. Not just the people who look like us and think like we think and like what we like. That's the purpose of Jesus, to bring everyone in, to bind us all together and, and to build us into a kind of temple of our own. Do you know that? Peter says that, the apostle Peter. He says that, that when you come to Jesus, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. That's what God wants to do. He wants to bring everybody from everywhere and build them into a temple to the Lord. So my question is, again, have we cleared the way? Are we aligned with that purpose as his people? And that brings us to the third point, the perception of the people. Maybe this would be better to say his perception of the people. Because we read these last few verses of the passage, and this little bit, these last lines, I don't know, there's something about them. It just makes Jesus so compelling to me. I read this, and, and it, it blows me away. It says, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. I think I, this, I'm so drawn to these last few verses because in these verses I just see how Jesus is so different from me. He's so unlike me. When these people get impressed with Jesus, when the crowds start to follow Jesus, when they start to tell him how great he is and, and gather around him, Jesus, he doesn't let that stuff go to his head. He isn't fooled. It says he's not fooled by their praises because he knows what's in every man, every woman. He knows what's in us. It's funny to me, being in ministry, because I, I often meet so many pastors, and I've, I've been this way myself, where you get so obsessed with numbers. Who's there? How many people are there? You see 3,000 people come to faith at Pentecost, or, or 5,000 people being fed uh, after Jesus' teaching, and you say, well, that's what we need. That's how things are supposed to be. But Jesus didn't think like that. Jesus came to save billions of souls, but he only had 12 followers. 
He didn't have an army. And those 12 people ran away when he was crucified. And he knew that would happen. He knew it would happen. He wasn't surprised. And you know why he wasn't surprised? Well, it says it right here, because he knows what's in us. He wasn't concerned with our accolades. He knew the praises in that crowd were selfish and that they were fleeting. But here's the crazy part. Even though he knew that, he died for them anyway. He died for you anyway. Someone told me the other day that they struggle in church because they feel like everyone else here is a better Christian than me. You ever feel that way? Everybody else here is a better Christian than me. I get that. But you know what? It's not true. Even now, as I'm preaching this text and I'm asking these kind of hard questions and stepping on some toes, I really don't want you to hear me say, I'm better at doing this than you are, because I'm not. I'm not a better Christian than you. Steve Brown, a, a, a pastor I, I really like to listen to sometimes, he used to say, you know, if you knew me, if you really knew me, if you knew what I thought, if you knew some of the things I've done, well, you wouldn't want me preaching to you. And then he said, and if I knew you, <laughs> and I knew some of the things you've taught and some of the things you've done, well, I wouldn't want to preach to you. But here's the thing. Jesus knows. He knows. And he still loves you. John says he didn't entrust himself to the people who trusted in him, but he gave his life for them. It's crazy to think about, but even those guys that Jesus was using a whip to drive their animals out of the courtyard and flip their tables over, even those guys, do you know why Jesus was there in the first place? He was there to give his life as a ransom for their sin. He had come to take the penalty for the very sinners who were driving him crazy, for the very sinners who were driving him to the point of righteous anger, for those people out in that courtyard selling Passover lambs, Jesus came so that they could paint the blood of the true lamb over the doorposts of their hearts and be protected from the real wrath of God forever. And if you don't believe in Jesus, you at least have to be amazed by that. Because we don't do that. We don't love like that. He is the only one who could possibly love that way. None of us are so good. So, let's remove every obstacle. We want people to see him, not us. We want people to come in this room and the thing that they and to know that they they can see him and that they are being seen by him. Do you know that? Do you know that? Right now, do you know that Jesus sees you? In this moment, he sees you. He sees your heart. He knows what's in you. 
He knows the good and the bad. And still today, he calls to you. So will you respond? Can you respond to him today? Now, the truth is, if you respond to him, he may need to turn over some tables. Not just in the church, but in your life. He may need to clean house a little bit. He may need to show you some things that you don't want to see. He may need to change some of the things that you really like the way they are. But if you let him have his way, if we let him have his way, just think of what he might do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that, that you will not allow any of us to leave here unscathed by the truth of your eye. God, I thank you so much that you can look at me, a miserable sinner, and you can still love me. I thank you so much for the power of your Holy Spirit dwelling inside your people, that you don't leave us where we are, that we're all a mess, but we're not as bad as we used to be, and, we're not, and you're not finished. And Lord, I pray for anybody here this morning who is seeking you, who doesn't know you, who's looking for truth pray you would find them, that they'd hear you calling, and that they would know they can come to you and be secure. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.